you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 4. We'll continue worshiping the Lord uh, by reading His Word and by uh, placing our hearts before Him that He might be our teacher. Mark chapter 4, verse 26, and I'll read through verse 34. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he also said, what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father uh, and our God and our King and our Lord, we uh, bow and uh, we need your spirit that our passage reminds us that we can indeed hear and lest Jesus gives understanding, then even what we hear is perplexing. And so, Father, I I pray for, first of all, your spirit to give attentive hearts. I pray for your spirit to guide and lead me. I pray for your spirit to open our eyes that we would see and that we would worship and that we would attune our hearts to you and that this would change us, uh, that we would look more and more like Jesus. Father, forgive us of our sins. They are many. And uh, pardon us and cleanse us and uh, renew into us right spirits, soft hearts. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So when we started, I had Wright uh, read uh, some passages from 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And uh, I'll try to loop those back into our time together. But the question that we have to ask when you hear the first passage that Wright read about uh, Elijah, who's in a cave and who is fearing his life and who is afraid, is like, man, like, how did he get in there? Uh, Now, if you know a little bit about the context of that passage, here's what's striking. Elijah undeniably saw the breaking in of the power and the kingdom of the Lord. You don't have to turn to it, but if you go back and put that passage in its context, you'll learn that Elijah prayed that the earth would not send rain and the earth did not rain. That you will learn that right after that, Elijah goes to a widow who, because of the drought, is about to eat her last meal. And Elijah goes because the Lord sends her. And this widow has this last meal with flour that she's about to serve to her son. And they're going to eat their last meal and die. And Elijah shows up and he blesses that flour so that it lasts perpetually until the drought stops. So he sees that, right? Then this woman's son, he dies, and Elijah sort of, with God's aiding and leading, brings this boy back to life. 
And then they leave there and Elijah goes and they do battle with all the prophets of Baal. You have 450 prophets of Baal doing war against one Yahweh and one Elijah. And Elijah and Yahweh, they triumph over the prophets of Baal. And then Elijah prays that there is rain. And guess what? It starts to rain again. Now, he had just seen the breaking in of the kingdom of God, and then he hears these one little words from Jezebel. I mean, that is what changed everything. He hears Jezebel say, tomorrow you will be a dead man. And that is how you get a prophet in a cave hiding. Now, the question that we have to ask is, brother, like, why are you in a cave? You just raised somebody from the dead. You just prayed that it not rain. You just brought somebody back to life. You just gave widow food perpetually. And all it takes is one little woman to say, tomorrow you're a dead man and you're running. What what happened to him? The kingdom of the world is clashing with the kingdom of God. He sees God's power and might and blessing and strength. And and then all it takes is like one little woman to say you're dead tomorrow. And he's in a cave hiding like, Lord, I'm the last one left. And the Lord says, no, you're not. I got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You just don't see. He says, get up and go back out there and anoint another king and anoint another prophet. And here's the thing. Elijah never did die. Jezebel never did take his life. Her life was taken, and Elijah was taken into glory without ever seeing death. That is a battle of the kingdom that's happening in the text. Now, here's a question that I think is relevant to our passage. Jesus is the greater prophet. And here's what you're about to see. We're about to get into a beautiful part of Mark's Mark's gospel. Did you notice that Jesus is about to do everything Elijah did? That the passage right after our text, there's going to be a storm that comes. And, And the winds and the waves and nature are about to overtake the disciples. And then what does Jesus do? He tames nature. He says, wind and waves, you stop. Elijah prays that rain stops. Jesus is okay. Winds and waves, you stop right now. What else is going to happen right after this section? That that there's going to be a man with a demon, and then Jesus heals the man, and then you get this, this resurrection passage that it's not a widow with a son, it's reversed. So now it's a son named a man named Jarius who has a daughter, and his daughter dies, and then Jesus shows up. No, 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 she is not dead. And then Jesus raises this little girl to life. And then you keep reading a little further, you get this food narrative, right? That you get get 5,000 men sitting around this place having heard Jesus speak. And then you got five loaves and two fish. And what does Jesus do? You get this food miracle. He takes what? He takes the little stuff that they have and he multiplies it. Why? Why? Not just so a widow and her son can live, but 5,000 family units can live. In other words, what's about to happen in Mark is Jesus is about to pull off the cape. And he's about to say the kingdom is here. And it's coming with authority and power and healing and forgiveness. And you can almost anticipate 
that the kingdom of the world in the same days of Elijah, it does not like that. And so what happens? You get this revolt in the same way that Jezebel says, tomorrow you're a dead man. Did you read what's going to happen after this? Like right after this, guess whose head is put on a platter because of a queen? John the Baptist. In the middle of the tussling, John the Baptist's head is put on a platter. Jesus the prophet goes back to Nazareth, and guess what? The people, we don't want you. You see what's happening? There was this clashing of the kingdom in Elijah's day, and, and, and the clashing of the kingdom sent him into a cave, and the disciples are about to see this clashing of the kingdom, and you know where they will end up at the end of Mark's gospel? Not in a cave, but in a room with the doors locked. And you're like, brother, how, how you get into a cave? And haven't you seen all of this at work? What happened? When the kingdom of this world revolts, though they saw the kingdom of the Lord, a switching happened. They underestimated the power and working and advancing of the kingdom of God. And they overestimated the power and working of the kingdom of the world. And they are undone. Now, here's the case that I want to make to you this morning and us. We're too uppity to go get into a cave when we see the fight. We're too uppity to kind of go lock ourselves in the room when we see the fight. But isn't it easy to stay locked in our own minds and locked in our own feelings and locked in our own sight when we see the clashing of the kingdoms? How many of you in this room can attest to the power and glory of Christ? Your eyes are open. You now see. You have tasted and have seen and you know the Lord is good. That you are now here worshiping the Lord because he himself sovereignly said, my child, you now see. My child, you now hear. And so you have tasted the heights of the kingdom. And then, and then you get hit with these things. Pastor unlocking the door of his church, and he's murdered. And I went to school with his nephew. Or you get the height of seeing your kid profess faith, and when they're 27, they take their life, and you get the low. You get the height of walking down an aisle and and promising covenant faithfulness to one another until death, and it's beautiful, and then you get the low, and that low is when one person doesn't want to be in the marriage anymore. You've tasted the high, and you've seen the low, and what does it do to you in that moment when the kingdoms collide? It catches you off guard, just like it catches me off guard. And it makes me stay in the cave of my mind and in my heart. God, are you really there? And are you really at work? And are you really sovereign? And are you really good? And are you really with me? Like I've tasted, like I've seen, because right now I don't see it. And I don't feel it. And it hurts. And I'm lost. 
You see, what I think Jesus is doing is preparing the disciples to see. And I think the way that Mark has arranged these last parables, they are kingdom parables. Notice it's about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. Why would Jesus say the kingdom of God is like this? Because when the kingdom of the world crashes against it and that fight comes to your front door, we need to know that his kingdom operates in a way that's different from what we think. What Jesus is doing and what Mark is doing is giving us perspective that when the fight of the world comes to your front door and troubles land in your front lap, and when the brokenness of this world comes and knocks on your front door and and comes into your heart and camps out with a chair and says, we just going to be here for a minute, you kind of have to know how your kingdom works. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. It's perspective. Perspective changes everything. Got two big points, and then we'll land the plane after that. When the clashing of the kingdoms come, they will. Let us remember these three things about the kingdom of God. The first thing, beloved, is it advances slowly. This first parable, the one we see about the kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. You know where this parable is found? Only in Mark. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Luke and it's not in John. Only in Mark. And my question is, is it significant that Mark alone puts this parable in his gospel. And I think so. Here's why. You remember Mark chapter 1? When Jesus came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open up. After his baptism, the Holy Spirit immediately drove Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus called the first disciples and they immediately left their nets and left their father. Jesus touches the man with leprosy and immediately he is clean. That word immediately It's used in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 6, and 7, and 8, and 9, and 10, and 11, and 14. Mark's picture is the kingdom is on the move, and everything is happening very, very fast, right? So I totally get it why the disciples could think I'm going to preach one sermon, and every time I preach this one sermon, it's going to have immediate results, right? I'm going to pray this one prayer, and as soon as I pray this one prayer for wisdom, the Lord's going to like, you have it immediately. I got this thing I'm wrestling with in my life, and I'm praying for it, and I'm not going to have to carry this jump a long time, but he's going to immediately remove it. And if you live long enough, you know that that's not true. It might be true sometimes, like the Lord does, and I think you see it in Acts when Peter preaches and you get 5,000 who are saved instantly, right? You see it when Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about the money, and as soon as uh, Sapphira lies, immediately she is like 
struck by the Spirit. You see it when Paul is blinded by scales, and as soon as he meets another man by the, by the name of Ananias, it, it happens immediately. I'm not denying the immediate ability to the Lord to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, but here's the thing. It's not always fast. Well, Mike, what Mark is actually saying is that, beloved, get ready for slow. Get ready to slow down. See, we cheat in America. We go to Lowe's and we go to Home Depot and we can go buy a plant. But have you noticed that 90% of the plants you and I buy and put in our yards, somebody else grew them somewhere else. We're cheaters, right? So when we read this parable, we don't understand the concept of, of not, you know, not like getting a lantana that's like already blooming, that you're cheating. Like somebody else planted this. You're only seeing the top. You're not seeing what happened at some nursery somewhere else. These joints started out as a seed. Now, what happens when you plant a seed? What happens tomorrow to a seed that you put in the ground today? It looks just like it did yesterday. And it looks just like you did the, the day after that, the day after that. In other words, you get this seed image in here, and we, we completely read past it. And on top of this, you see this Hebrew idiom in here. It says the man sowed, and then he, he, he uh, I want to make sure I do justice to the text, and he sleeps and rises night and day. That night and day, that is not just... Uh, that is a chron it's more than just a chronological indicator of time. It's an idiom for a long stretch of time past. How do we know? We're going to meet a man who's demon-possessed and who's been tormented by demons, and they say like night and day. We're going to hear another parable about a widow who prays and, and, and prays and petitions night and day. It's not just one night and one day, beloved. It means a really, really, really long time. You hear what Jesus is saying? The kingdom is going to be slow. For all the immediately you see in Mark's Gospels, these two parables counterbalance that. Expect some big and bad and grand flashes of fast-moving stuff in your life. And also be prepared when things come down to a snail's pace. Not everything in the kingdom is like a microwave. I love microwaves. I remember we got our first microwave. I would throw hot dogs in there and cook them for like two minutes just to see them like blow up. <laughs> and it blew my mind that you could like cook, you could heat up an entire meal in 60 seconds. And we're a microwave culture where we want everything to be resolved right now. And if that's our attitude, we're going to hate the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's like that Boston butt that you slow roast on the grill with wood chips and you let that boy cook all night long. And in the end, it's worth it. But in the moment, it doesn't feel good because everything in us wants this fixed right now. Jesus says, if you're going to understand the kingdom, the first thing, it's going to move slowly at times. The second thing we see is, is it's going to advance with stealth. 
I love the fact that it says the kingdom of God is like a man who plants a seed and then he goes to sleep and he wakes and sleeps. That's a long time. But then notice what it says. The seed sprouts and grows and he not he knows not how the earth produces by itself. You, you hear what's happening? It's not just when you plant a seed, it takes forever to develop. But guess what? That seed is hidden from your sight. Matter of fact, the man goes and like goes to sleep and he wakes up and goes back to sleep and wakes up and goes back to sleep. And it looks on the surface as if nothing is happening. And it actually says, well, he doesn't even know how it grows. Man, that is that is so passive. When the man is asleep, the kingdom is not. When the man is resting, the seed is not. When the man wants to see things fast, the kingdom is slow. When the man thinks he has to go out there and till it, it's like, hey, this thing is happening beneath the surface with or without your participation. It's moving in stealth. Think about Acts chapter 8. You don't have to turn there, but you get this, this, this juxtaposition, right? You get this contrast where you see 5,000 and 6,000 and thousands of people added to the kingdom daily in Jerusalem. And then you get to Acts chapter 8, and you got this Ethiopian dude who the Holy Spirit tells Philip, hey, go this way, down that way, right? And Philip goes, he's transported to some desert place, and there is an Ethiopian man reading Isaiah. How did dude get a scroll to be reading Isaiah? You know, he wasn't discipled by the, the apostles. Philip was playing catch up. While all the big stuff was kind of happening in Jerusalem, there's an Ethiopian dude in this podunk town who, who is coming to faith right there. And the Lord is like, gotcha, you got to catch up. Y'all are not the only ones working. Well, y'all think all the major activity is happening in Jerusalem. I'm on the continent of Africa doing stuff. And you're not at the center of it. And of course, Philip goes and he leads this man to Jesus and baptizes him. But that's beside the point. God's kingdom is moving when we don't see it. It's moving in stealth. Think about a war. And think about big B-52 bombers. And I'm talking about the ones that you can hear and you can feel and you can see the payload and it is intimidating it's a show of force and power, and stealth is nowhere in the MO of that plane. Now, here's the thing. Some of us think the kingdom of God only functions like this. I need to see it and feel it and hear it, and when it comes, boom, right? Here's the plane that I'm probably most afraid of. Look at, give this one for me, Nate. This is the B-2 stealth bomber. Isn't she lovely, right? Next slide. Look at that, right? Next slide. Those are fighter jets surrounding the jet, the, the plane in the middle. And you know what's dangerous about the, the B-2 stealth bomber? You don't detect it on radar. The skin on it 
does something with cooling down. The engines are tucked in the middle so that it does not give off this thermodynamic footprint. In other words, this plane is so successful because you can't see it. You can see the evidence of it when it drops the payload, but you do not see this happening. Now, beloved, here's what I think Mark is telling us, what Jesus is telling us. The kingdom of God is also like this. God does stuff that we can't see. And he's moving and advancing his agenda, and we're playing catch up to it. It moves with stealth. Thank you, Nate. Think about the Great Awakening in church history where we love to talk about the thousands of people who came to faith. We love to talk about the people who walk down the aisle and we count them one by one and they go to the mourner's bench and they pray and, and we're making big numbers and, and, and it's driven by numbers. And here is the thing that would counterbalance that. Not every convert walks down the aisle. There's some people in this room right now who did not walk down an aisle and it was not public and large and flashy. You sat there on the back of some pew in some church and you wept and, and when you met Jesus. And it was not in anybody's record book. So don't fall into the trap of thinking the kingdom of God has to go with show and pomp and circumstance. Jesus says, no, the kingdom is advancing and it's advancing when you and I don't see it and don't even understand it. The third thing we see in the passage is that his kingdom advances with certainty. Did you catch both parables? N note, look at the movement from seed to harvest, from seed to big all-out plant. It, it, it's moving with certainty. That, that, that it's not interrupted, the seed is not lost, right? That the man sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts, the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how and the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, did you catch that? It's moving towards ripeness and fullness. It's certainty. The seed planted will get ripe. Look at the second parable, which I think we could totally, which we could totally say it's about the smallness of the kingdom that then grows large. I think that is doing great justice to the text. But I also think that's not it. Whenever you see so that in your languages, right? Or I mean, so that in your Bible, you're getting a case that's being made. This did this, and this did this, and this did this, and this did this, and this did this, so that. In other words, everything that's happening here is so that. Like, this is the goal. This is the end. This is the purpose. And so when you look at the mustard seed, the mustard seed is planted, and it is small. And it does grow, and it does become really, really large, but that is not the end of the sentence. The largeness, the size of the plant is not the end of the sentence. Look at how the sentence ends. It ends with the, the, the plant being large so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. 
the question that we have to ask about the mustard seed is what is the mustard seed for? And in Mark, it is so that a plant might grow large so that birds of the heavens might find rest there. Now, you and I know that it's not ultimately about birds of the heavens finding rest. If you turn over to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 17, there is this talk about this tree that grows and grows and grows and grows. Listen to this section from Daniel chapter 4, and it's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit were abundant, and in it were fo was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived on its branches. And then he saw a watchman, a holy one, come down from heaven and say, chop off the tree. And you know what happened after that? Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, and the Lord takes his kingdom. Now, here's the question. That tree in that vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw, it was his own kingdom. His own kingdom had grown strong. He grew prideful, and his kingdom had become popular so that everyone from the earth benefited from it. And his kingdom, he thought, provided food and rest for people. And then Jesus says, no, nah, homeboy, you do not have that much juice. We're going to cut your kingdom down, and the kingdom that I will bring, it will be the tree that the earth longed for. And in the tree that I'm planting, all the nations of the earth will find rest in it. In other words, this parable is also a parable of fulfillment. He's not only saying my kingdom is certain, but me and the coming of the kingdom will result in rest. Rest for your souls. So when your marriage is hard, this parable screams rest. That when we enter hard seasons in life, this parable promises rest. That when we feel vulnerable and afraid and discouraged, this parable says rest to you, my beloved. And it's certain. This is the perspective he wants the disciples to have as they enter the clashing. And here's the question. In light of this perspective, how does this information change how we react when the clashing of the kingdoms happen? And I think there's a correlation. What might be God calling us to when he says at times his kingdom will move slowly? What's on the opposite end of that, beloved? A slow-moving kingdom at times will demand slow-moving people. In the midst of the fight, everything in you and everything in me, it wants instant results right now. And Jesus is saying, 
Sometimes the pain will linger. Sometimes the sadness will linger. And slow down. Don't be in a rush to get rid of it. Slow down to God. How many times does David say, I will wait patiently on the Lord? He inclined to me his ear and he heard my cry. He drew me from the pit of destruction. He set my feet on a rock, making me secure. And he put a new song in my mouth. The new song in David's mouth is the song that's only composed when he is in the season of grief and sorrow and sadness for a really long time. And yet waiting faithfully and patiently on the Lord. I don't like waiting. I proposed to my wife in April of 2013, and her mom wanted me to wait a year and a month. You got to let her finish pharmacy school, baby. And by the fall, we was like, man, let's just go elope, right? Let's just, man, let's get this over with. I, I don't like waiting. And we did wait. Like, we honored her mother, and we waited, and it was good. I was at Bailey in middle school, seventh grade, and I played soccer my whole life. And my science teacher was the soccer coach, and he found out that there was a group of us who played soccer. And yes, I went out there as a seventh grader on the high school team and played, and my mama snatched me off the team like, boy, you got to wait. You're not old enough. That's illegal. I struggle with waiting. And don't you, beloved, we want quick fixes, faster, stronger, better, now. And sometimes the Lord is slow moving, and he's with us in it. I love what Peter later writes, who I know was there at the time because he was in the number and this is Mr. Quickshot himself. He says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Peter's like, come on. I learned the hard way. God is not on your timetable. Be ready to slow down. If God is not bound by time, is not pressed for time, it means that as Christ is formed in us, patience is a virtue. It doesn't feel good all the time. The next thing we see, if, if God's kingdom moves with stealth, then what might God be calling us to rather than sight? He might be calling us to faith. That faith is the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That I know what it's like in that moment. Lord, show me what you're up to. Show me a sign. Show me, show me, show me, give me. And I think what Jesus is saying is that there are times when the Lord does his work and we don't see it. And we want a sign and we want to see fruit. 
And the Lord is just like, I'm working. And everything I do is not going to be visible to you. It means that it might look like that child of yours is lost. And you can't see fruit right now. But that does not mean that God is not at work. It might mean that it might look like your marriage is over. And it doesn't make sense. But that does not mean that God is not at work. It might look like all of these things are happening to you and you, you, you're going by what you see and you make the mistake that I make the mistake of and thinking because I can't see it and comprehend it, then it must not be happening. And Jesus is saying, no, there are times when I will show you what I'm up to and there are times when I will disclose it and I will be at work. What I need you to do is to pray, to pursue me, to meditate. And then some of the best things we can do in the trial is to do what this man does in the passage. He does the work and he goes to sleep. Because when he sleeps, guess who's working? God. Many of you know the story of George Mueller, who was a missionary and he had five orphanages. And look, I'm not encouraging, if you're a missionary, I'm not encouraging his missionary practice. Look, I used to work for RUF, and I I would tell people, this is my budget. This is what we need. That's biblical. Paul does that all in the Gospels. Hey, I need you to do this when I do this and do this. But his philosophy was I'll never tell another person what I need. Rather, he prayed. Now, listen to these two stories because they're, 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 they're true. That one day he was at the table with all the orphans and there was no food in the refrigerator. And he sat down at the table and he prayed. And then there was a knock on the door. A baker overbaked bread. And he happened to overbake bread and have enough to feed everybody in the house that morning. And then the milkman who was driving happened to have an accident in front of George Mueller's door. And he gave all the milk that would have been going somewhere else that was stuck right in front of George Mueller's door. And the orphans who were foodless hours before had food and bread and they never went without a meal If you look at sight and if you look at what you see in your refrigerator that morning, it looks like you are starving. But if you know that when you are not working, there is a God who is responsible for the cog and that wheel that breaks down in front of your door to give these orphans milk. There is a God who is responsible for a baker who overbakes bread and then he providentially thinks about your orphanages and drops bread off in front of the door. Here's what we learn from that family. God does not need to run everything he is doing by you. And there are a gazillion of things he's up to that he is not making you and I aware of. He's at work and he's on the move. And so when the kingdoms collide, faith, Lord, I see this with my eyes, but by faith and your commitment to me in Jesus, 
I know this to be a reality right now. And I'm going to let you be God and I'm going to rest. I think there's something to this fact that Jesus talks about the man who sleeps. Did you catch what happens in the next passage right after this? A real storm happens. What is Jesus doing while the storm is happening? He is asleep. Did you catch that? Why would Jesus sleep when the storm is brewing? This is Jesus in his humanity. He trusts the Father. He knows that the Father will not take my life until it goes to the cross. And therefore, because he's true and good, I'm going to go to sleep. It's the disciples who are panicking. And then Jesus puts on the other hat in the boat and does what only God can do, and that is to calm the nature. But Jesus takes his own medicine family. And if God's kingdom is certain... No matter what we see, there's always hope. If it's slow, he's calling us to be patient. If it advances in stealth, he's calling us to walk by faith and not by sight. And if his kingdom is coming in its certainty, it means no matter what happens to you today or tomorrow or next year, the tree has blossomed. And you will find rest forever. And we can believe that. Now, here's the question. How is this ours? How is this ours? Because if we think long and hard about these two parables, isn't this the life of Jesus? Was he not kept at the Father's side? For ages, generations come, generations go, generations come, generations go. And at the right time, when God says now, now is the time. Didn't he wait patiently for the Lord to start the plan of redemption? What about this idea of seed? Don't we get it that Jesus, who is equal with the Father, deity of deity, That he actually, and this is from Tim Keller, he actually becomes a seed in the womb of a woman. He's an embryo. He actually goes inside of a woman and is is there hidden from the world. There is no majestic parade when the Messiah of glory comes to the earth. There is no pomp and circumstance. Jesus is quietly placed in the womb of a virgin that no one knew about and is born in a city that no one even thought was important. Isn't that just like God to not need to make a big show about what he's up to? And don't we believe about Jesus that he was strung up on a tree, the cross? He wasn't the tree, but he was put on a tree so that as his, the blood of Calvary dripped into the ground, this new tree of redemption grows. And through his death and resurrection, 
We are grafted into it. And we now have rest. This parable, these parables only make sense and are only ours as they flow through the cross of Christ. And because he's ours, we can have this perspective. The other passage that Wright read was from 2 Kings 6. And it's about the second prophet, Elisha. Elisha had an encounter with a woman. Elisha raised a woman's son from death. Elisha was about to be attacked by a great army. And his servant came to him and says, Master, what shall we do? And you know what Elisha told him? This is where their narratives depart. They're the same, they're the same. But when it comes to not Jezebel crashing down, now you have a whole army crashing down on Elisha. And you know what he says? Those with us are more than those with them. And he prayed, Lord, please open the eyes of this young man. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's the perspective. When the kingdom clashes, might we say, greater is the one for us than whomever is against us because of this parable. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts, not just with information, but with inward heart transformation. Make us a patient people. Make us a faithful people. Make us a hopeful people. Because your kingdom is certain. Because your kingdom advances when we don't see it. Because your kingdom advances slowly. Do this for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.